Okay. Um, so this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through, um, I want to give a little bit more background and a little bit more meat to my sermon back on January 1st. Um, so in January, uh, what, what we're doing over the course of the next several weeks, um, several months, mind you, is that we're going to be walking through the book of Ephesians. And um, during that time, uh, we're going to be covering quite a bit of theology. So we're just going to walk through slowly and take our time through that. Um, and what I'm hoping is that it will give us a better, a better grasp of what our life in Christ uh, looks like and what we, have, um, what we have to hope for. Now, last week, we were in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, and uh, we, I, I stopped there strategically because of the, um, th there's just so much material in that first chapter, and I didn't want to overwhelm people in one sermon. And I also wanted to give good, uh, I wanted to be faithful to the text, and I felt that if I went any further, I'd be jumping around. I also didn't want to continue on that sermon series this week uh, without being in person. Uh, because it's just a little bit different being online like this than it is being in person. So what I thought I would do this week is to give a little bit more background on that passage, on the idea of predestination or being chosen, and then um, to give you reasons why um, that doctrine is so important. And so, uh, first of all, let me read that passage again that we covered last week. Uh, Paul writes, uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we paused right there last week. Um, now, I'm going to go ahead and read a few more verses but we're not going to walk through them. The reason I'm going to read them is because it's going to bring up some context for some passages that I'm going to go through this morning. So after that, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, uh, the first thing that I want to say is we might believe that this idea of predestination or God choosing some for salvation and God choosing others for condemnation is a, for, some might think that it's a new theology. It is not. It's been there from the foundations of the earth. 
And so this is not a, uh, before the foundations of the earth, I might add. So this isn't a new theology. This is built into the fabric of life itself. Uh, this was a part of God's providence. It laid the foundation of God's providence. Um, the second thing is that we might assume that early Christians just took it for granted that this was true, and that's not true either, is that even early Christians struggled with the idea of God making choices regarding our salvation. And so if you struggle with that, or if you have struggled with that, then uh, you are not alone. Uh, it's something that has been uh, a point of contention in the Christian life, uh, pr pretty much from the beginning, uh, but especially with regards to um, the advent of Jesus and the crucif crucifixion and the gospel. And so you are not alone there. You might also wonder, why in the world do we have to worry about this? Can't we just go talk about John 3, 16? Can't we just go uh, talk about the Roman road to salvation? Uh, can't we just go preach Jesus's love and not worry about God choosing and predestination and election and all of these higher order theological concepts. What, why do we need to know this? And I thought about that myself because one thing that I have continually said is that you do not have to believe in predestination or election in order to be saved. That, that You do not have to believe that in order to be saved. But what I would argue is that if you don't believe it, or if you deny election and predestination, God's uh, sovereignty in choosing those for salvation, if you deny that, then you have a deficient gospel. And I would argue that it can lead to a life that is self-dependent um, as opposed to dependent upon Christ. And so there is a danger there. And so I have, um, I made a list this morning uh, when I got up of the, the benefits of believing and understanding and adopting uh, the theology of predestination. Now, if you've been following me for the last six years, you know that this is a, you, you might think that this is my favorite topic to talk about. And from a theological perspective, it probably is. Um, I, I, and the reason is because I did not always believe this. I didn't always believe it. And one of the, and, and I did not believe it for the same reasons that many people don't believe it is because it took the choice. It, it, it took the mechanism of belief out of my hands meaning that um, if, if my salvation is solely in God's hands and not in mine by at least some way, like through a prayer or something, then, then what is my role? I had to have a role in this. I just absolutely had to have a role in this. And without having a role, I felt uh, very, um, uh, very vulnerable. Um, 
but as I read God's word and as I prayed about it and began to understand it, what I realized is that vulnerability um, is necessary. It is necessary to be vulnerable um, in order to fully depend upon the Lord. Um, and also that there was a lot of anxiety uh, in my life regarding my salvation. Um, I cannot tell you how many times from the age of probably 11 to the age of, I don't know, er, uh, early 20s, uh, that I have prayed the sinner's prayer just to make sure that it took. I just wanted to make sure that it took. And so there was a lot of anxiety there. Well, what if I'm not really a believer? What, what if I didn't pray it? What if I didn't pray effectively? Um, what, what about this, this remaining sin in my life that is, that, that is, uh, that, that I'm dealing with that I struggle with, you know, I, it seems like I keep sinning the same sins and, and all this stuff. I must not be a believer. I I need to pray again. I need to pray the sinner's prayer again, you know, and there was this anxiety and I had very little assurance uh, in my salvation. And the reason I didn't have that assurance is because I was placing the onus of my salvation on myself and not on the Lord. And it, it built a level of anxiety that made it very difficult for me to have a joy in my salvation, uh, finding a joy in the Christian life, because I was always worried that I was going to, I believed in, in word, the doctrine of, of um, the perseverance of the saints, I believed that once you were saved, you could not lose your salvation in word, but I think probably in practice, I felt that I was going to screw up enough, if I could use that crass phrase, to where I was going to lose my salvation, um, and um, that, yeah, yeah, I know the Bible teaches you can't lose your salvation, but the Bible hasn't dealt with somebody like me yet, you know, something like that. That's a pretty bold and, um, and self-important uh, way to be, to live, and so um, through some encouragement from some, uh, from some brothers in Christ, a few, very few, but through some encouragement, I really began to study the Word. I began to read the Bible more in depth, especially with these passages, and I began to uh, read books that argued for the complete sovereignty of God. You see, the God that I believed in before was not completely sovereign. Uh, he was sovereign with a lot of things, but he wasn't sovereign on over my salvation. He was only sovereign to a point. And, but when it came to my salvation, that was on my shoulders. When it came to my kids, that was on my shoulders. Uh, when it came to my friends, it was on my shoulders. If I don't preach well enough, if I don't teach well enough, and these kids don't learn the gospel well enough from me, they're going to go to hell and it's going to be my fault. That's a lot of 
weight to be carrying. And, um, and it can, and this is why I believe a lot of pastors struggle with depression and anxiety and burnout. And because they feel as if the weight of the, the world's salvation is on their shoulders because they do not fully appreciate the idea that God is sovereign over all things, even our salvation. So here are the benefits that I wrote down, and there are more, but these are the top five that I wrote down of understanding, studying, and believing the doctrine of predestination or election. And I think you'll see the practicalities of this. First off, it increases, and these are in, in no uh, specific order. Number one, it increases the dependence upon God. If we truly believe that our salvation is solely of the work of Christ, and we are taken out of that role, that our efforts are not do not play a role in our salvation, either through good works or through a sinner's prayer or of anything like that, then what happens is that we become fully dependent upon God. And what that means, and this has been very, uh, I, and I think one of the reasons why this is so important to me here recently is that here the past few months and and this past year, uh, my life, my family's life has gone through quite an upheaval. <laughs> um, th there have been quite a few changes that we weren't expecting. And through that whole time, one of the things that I kept going back to is that I kept saying that God is in control that God is in control of this, um, that God has been faithful and that God will continue to be faithful. And I'm just going to depend on him. He knows better than I do what the future holds because he ordained it. And I'm just going to continue to trust that he is going to see us through this. And so we're just going to continue to be as faithful as we possibly can be with the Spirit's guidance. And we're going to trust that the Lord is going to, um, it, we know that the Lord is going to be faithful. We're going to do our part. Now, I also know that um, our actions matter. Our actions do matter. Um. But in the end, the overarching theme is that God is sovereign over all things, those expected and those unexpected. So it increases our dependence upon God. Number two, it increases our confidence in the efficacy of salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? I know that I am imperfect in more ways 
than I can probably describe. And so as, you know, for all the imperfections that others see in me, I know in reality that those imperfections are tenfold in reality. Because there are imperfections that I have that I know I have that others don't see. I have thoughts. I have motivations. I have desires. I have things in my heart that I wish weren't there. And I know that if my salvation was dependent upon my holiness, then I would fail in achieving salvation. There's there would there would be no the there would there's no way there's no way that I would be saved. But if salvation is solely dependent upon God's will and God's sovereign choice, then my confidence in salvation is measured by my confidence in God. And so if I have complete got confidence in God, then I will have complete confidence in the efficacy of his salvation. And what I mean by efficacy is that not only does he save, but he maintains it. And so I think that's a very important thing for the assurance of our salvation is that if I don't believe that I had any role in salvation, then I'm not going to have any role in losing my salvation. If God saved me, he's going to keep me. And we know that the scripture teaches that throughout, uh, but especially in Romans 8, 29 and following, which I'll be reading at some point here. Uh, thirdly, it reduces any pride or haughtiness, or it should, I, I should put that in there. It should reduce pride and haughtiness. You had no role in your salvation, therefore you should not have any pride in your salvation. There should not be any haughtiness. That, or I should say, we could put this in a more positive light, that believing in God's election should increase your humility. And I would argue that if your salvation does not increase your humility, but instead increases your pride, then you do not have a complete understanding of God's election. So it should increase our humility. Christians... It, and, and I will throw another one in there that ties into this. It should reduce, or I'll put be positive about it. It should increase the grace and the mercy that we show towards others. So individuals who look at their salvation and have pride or haughtiness about their salvation are often judgmental. They will look at others and say, you are not like me. I am different. I am special. Um, I am better. 
and that is not of Christ. That that is that is not of Christ, um, because the reality is, you are one sovereign. You are one sovereign choice away from burning in hell. If I could put it that way, one sovereign choice. If God does not choose to save you, then you will stand condemned. It should also, and I guess I should have tied this with the dependence on God, it reduces or should reduce, and I've already mentioned this, our anxiety and our worry about results. I mentioned to you that about uh, in the neighborhood of four to 5,000 pastors step out of the pulpit every year. And so every year, I read this statistic last night from one of my pastor friends, um, and he comes from a different denomination than we are. He has a completely different theology than we do. He's a believer. Don't get me wrong. He's a believer. He loves the Lord. Um, but he does not believe in this at all. And I know that he has struggled with anxiety. He has, and, and one of the, one, one of the, comments in the post and i about shared the post but one of the comments was you know four to five thousand pastors leave the pulpit every year because they are concerned they have this they have the weight of the church's spiritual woes on their shoulders they're worried about people coming to the lord and being saved and um and all of these matters and and i want to tell you is that Early on in the ministry, when you didn't see people coming down that aisle for during the invitation, what that would do is it would cause you to believe that you have to preach better, or you have to work harder, or you have to go out and evangelize more, or you have to do some sort of shtick in order to get people to feel more emotional during the invitation so that they'll believe that they are sinners and that they need the love of God and all of these things uh, needed to, needed to happen. And then if they didn't happen, your anxiety increases, your worry increases. You feel like I need, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And so that's especially true with pastors, but it can also be true with Christians in general, because you're worried, if not about your salvation, you're worried about your child's salvation. You're worried about your grandchild's salvation. You're worried about your friend's salvation, that you know, that, um, that if, if I don't preach the gospel enough, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, then these people are not going to come to Christ. And, and if we believe in God's sovereign will over salvation, then those anxieties and those worries don't make sense. Because your job is not to save people. Your job is to present the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel. That's your job. Your job is not to worry or be anxious about your child's salvation and about whether they're going to heaven. Your job is not to worry about your grandchild or your friend or your spouse or anything like that. Your job is just to 
preach the gospel. Now, if you're not doing that, then you're then we are being disobedient. Then we're being disobedient. But I find it much easier to preach and share the gospel and to be more, and I will argue this, I believe that I can be more honest in sharing the gospel in all of its components, knowing that salvation is not dependent upon me. And here's what I mean by that, is that if, if I believe people being saved has something to do with um, how well I, you know, the, 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 the way that I present it or, 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 you know, what I include in it and stuff like that. Well, then here's the truth. I might, I, I might um, preach the gospel in a way that is more, um, uh, th that, that weighs more heavily on God's wrath to scare people into heaven, right? Or I might preach a gospel that is completely devoid of God's wrath and is focused solely on God's love and not on any of this wrath or hell talk so that people wouldn't be scared away from the gospel. And so on either case, I now have a deficient gospel. But if I believe that salvation has nothing to do with me and solely dependent upon God, and God is merely using me as a means of sharing the gospel, then what I'm freed up to do is just preach the gospel, preach the whole gospel, and then I'm going to let God use that however he deems fit. And I don't have to worry about trying to trying to manipulate the gospel to make it more palatable to unbelievers. I'm just going to preach the gospel as he prescribed it. And then I'm going to let the Lord do the saving work. And so it reduces anxiety. And finally, to tie in with this, I believe election and predestination, that theology increases the motivation for evangelism, outreach, and witnessing. And it's for that very reason. Some individuals are so terrified of being denied. Like, for instance, you preach the gospel or you share the gospel with someone and they reject the gospel. And if they reject the gospel, you feel as if they are rejecting you. And many of us do not deal well with rejection. And so instead of feeling that pain of rejection, we just don't witness. We just don't evangelize. But if you believe that the that God's that the saving work is solely belonging to the Lord, then that frees us up to evangelize, to witness, and to preach without the pain or the worry of rejection. Because in the end, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. At the same time, if they trust Christ, all right? then the win or the glory all goes to Christ. And so I, you've heard people say um, about, especially about older evangelists, that when they, when they talk about them, sometimes it's at their funerals, or it might be an introduction, you know, during, before they make a presentation or something like that. And one of the phrases that they will say is that this individual has won thousands of people to Christ. They've won thousands of people to Christ. I despise that language. 
I despise it. And here's why. Billy Graham, for all the ways and all the magnificent things that he uh, was accomplished for the sake of the Lord, he never won anyone to Christ. Christ is the one who did the saving. God is the one who saves, not Billy Graham. So if Billy Graham is getting any accolades at all, it is this. It's that God has used Billy Graham throughout his life to be a faithful instrument for preaching the gospel. That, that's it. That's it. Is that any, any other accolades or anything like that it all goes back to this, is that we are tools of the Lord. And that should give us that much more motivation to go out and preach and to preach the whole gospel. You know, Now, we need to be wise about it. We don't want to be jerks about it, right? Because there's a way to preach the gospel that makes you look like a jerk. And if you look like a jerk, then so does Jesus, right? And so we need to, we need to be loving. We need to be loving. We need to be... Um, we need to season everything with kindness, uh, but at the same time, we don't want to uh, we, we don't want to make the the gospel deficient in any way. And believing in God's sovereign choice and sovereign will means that we will um, means that we can preach boldly and not worried about it. We we don't worry about it. The results because the results are completely dependent upon the Lord. So I want to I want to read to you a few passages of scripture. Because the truth is, is that this idea of God's election is throughout all of the scriptures. Um, and the first one that I could turn to is, is this, is that some people believe that the doctrine of salvation or of predestination is unfair. But back in Psalm 135, verse 5 and um, 5 through 7, uh, the psalmist says this. He says, for I know that the Lord is great, and I know that our Lord is above all gods, little g, Whatever the Lord does, he whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The same Lord that makes the lightning, the wind, and the rain is the same one who sovereignly chooses who will serve him and who will not. And so the Lord does what he pleases. That is the great thing about being a creator. You get to say, and you get the, the opportunity to choose what your creation does and does not do. We get the opportunity to define, uh, or he gets, he gets the opportunity to define how salvation is accomplished. And so, so many Christians have all these different ideas and concepts of how we are saved and all this, and books are written and written and written, but in the end, God will do what he pleases, and God as creator, as sustainer, and as savior, he's the one that gets to define salvation, not us. So that's the first uh, passage. The next one is in John. Uh, John chapter 15, 
it says uh, in the passage that talks about I am the true vine, he says in verse 16 in chapter 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so some would argue that it's Paul that has this massive, uh, th this massive um, uh, argument for predestination, but it's built into the fabric of all of Scripture, even in Christ. And so when it says here that he that that uh, he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, that's what Christ is saying: is that I chose you, I appointed you to bear fruit. And so that's what the aim is. Um, and so if I could argue this, if you if you are a Christian. You were saved in order to bear fruit. And if you are not witnessing, if you are not evangelizing, if we are not reaching out to others and loving others by sharing the gospel, then we are not bearing fruit because that is the, that is the primary fruit that we will bear. If we go to, um, let's see here, Romans chapter 29, uh, chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so God foreknew and God predestined that we would look like Christ in every way. And of course, that passage continues on, and we will use that at some point during our uh, sermon in, a, in our study in Ephesians. If we go to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, he says this, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for, the glo for glory? So you might ask, if he chooses some for condemnation, why did he create them in the first place? And the answer is right there in Romans 9 for his glory. That's why. So whether you are a Christian or whether you are an unbeliever, you were created for God's glory and you will be used to that end. And you might say, well, isn't that a little bit just, just evil? Nope. Because God is God and we are not. Um, if I could jump back to another, and I want to, I want to go to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen. It says here, uh, "But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth." He To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so Paul to the Thessalonians in his second letter says, you were chosen for God's glory, therefore stand firm and continue on. And so this idea, so, so when we go and we share the gospel with, a, with, a, with an unbeliever, we should not go to them and say, um, present the gospel and then say, now, do you believe in Christ or has God chosen you for condemnation? That's probably not the best means of, um, of, of being an evangelist, right? Because unbelievers aren't going to understand that because our culture, which they have been reared of, they are products of our culture. Our culture says that you are your own God and you make your own choices and you're, and, and it's your own destiny. And so they're not going to understand this idea that their salvation is completely dependent upon a, a, a sovereign God. And so that would not be a helpful tax. So we're not talking about this. The reason we discuss predestination is not so that you can um, have a, a, a bigger argument um, for predestination to unbelievers. The reason we talk about this is so that you will have greater confidence in your own salvation, reduce your own anxiety over salvation and the things of, uh, of, of, of uh, like witnessing and evangelism, so that you will be more effective as you present the gospel. That's why we're talking about this. Um, when I said last week that, you know, my hope is that you will be able to defend, you know, this doctrine and this, uh, th this theology, I'm not talking about defending it to unbelievers or non-Christians. I'm talking about defending it with other believers who have anxiety over the fact that they are somehow responsible for others' salvations. Um, and so, like I said, if we, if we can grasp and fully comprehend this idea that God has a sovereign will in our salvation, a sovereign choice, then we will be more effective as proclaimers of his word. And we will be more joyful and more at peace, not only with our salvation, but how God intends to save the world around us. And, uh, and that's my hope. That's my hope that we just wouldn't, we wouldn't fret, that we wouldn't be people that would fret. When Paul tells us to not be anxious over anything, I don't believe that he is talking primarily about, um, about our finances. I don't believe he's talking about um, our relationships with our spouse or our children. I don't believe he's talking about whether or not UK is ever going to learn how to play basketball again. I don't believe that that's what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about our life. Don't be anxious about your life. And I don't think that's completely about our physical life. I think that's about our eternal. Don't be anxious about your eternal life because your eternal life was bought and paid for by Christ. If you are saved, you will continue to be saved. 
If God intends to save your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your friends, your family, then he's going to do it. And he very well may use you as the means by which that gets accomplished. However, it is still his work, not yours, that gets that done. So that frees us up to live in peace, with joy, and not fret over these things. And I think I said this last week, we have enough to fret about, if you want to say it that way, okay? There are enough things to fret about than fretting over something that you have no control over. And of course, Paul would even say about that, you shouldn't even be fretting about those things. So as we go, this hopefully that gives just more background and more meat to my sermon last week. Uh, last, as as I said, I'm going to post this, uh, the audio on, um, on our website. Uh, so it would, so you could almost say that last week's sermon, that this is an addendum to that, to better, to help explain. And, um, and, and again, I, I hope that we are more courageous in pre presenting the gospel as we more fully understand, uh, how God, how we are saved and how uh, God's plan of salvation goes forward. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to stop our recording, and then uh, we can have a little bit of discussion if you like. It's 10 a.m., uh, but if we'd like to have a little bit more discussion or just kind of feedback, then that'd be great. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your sovereign will over all things, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to be with us and to... Um, and to uh, love us and to uh, continuing continually keep us uh, for yourself, Lord. Father, I pray that for our church, I pray that we'd be uh, dynamic witnesses for Christ, that we would proclaim the gospel with, uh, without any concerns of uh, retribution or any concerns of rejection, Lord, and that we would just be faithful and unashamed, Lord. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.